I want to talk now about uh, about Mary, as we've got her recorded here in Luke chapter 1, and to bring out how extremely spiritually ambitious she was, and how spiritually minded she was. Now, literacy rates in Palestine were reckoned to be about 1%, and literacy rates amongst women were very, very low indeed. And she was poor. Uh, Mary was poor. I mean, you can figure that out from the the fact that when they have to make the offering for Jesus, when they bring him to the temple, they offer really the uh, the poor person's offering. And it's quite clear, putting the record together, that this was a, a poor family. Jesus was born into, into poverty. And the fact that they there was nowhere for them to stay, that Jesus was born in, in the stable, um, <coughs> I would impl- infer from that that they really didn't have money. So then she was poor, and she therefore would have been illiterate. I think we can safely say that she was an illiterate teenage girl in a backwater of the Roman Empire in Palestine, and even within Palestine she was in the backwater of, uh, of Galilee. And yet this woman, this young woman, was extremely spiritually minded. The angel appears to her uh, in verse uh, 30 here and and tells her that she is highly favoured. You have found favour with God, verse 30. Now, the Hebrew root for favour is HNN, and it's effectively the same as the word Hannah. So really she's being told that she'd been hannahed by God. And you've got it again in verse 28. The angel comes into her and says, Hail you who are highly favoured, you hannah-like one, literally. And so she reels off this uh, speech of uh, praise and, uh, uh, and, and thanksgiving for what's happened. This is beginning uh, really in... Uh, in verse 46, 47, <clears throat> where she, she starts to come out with what's called the Magnificat, the, uh, the Song of Praise of Mary. And yet going through this Song of Praise of Mary, it is full of allusions to First Samuel uh, 1 and First Samuel 2, particularly the Song of Praise of Hannah. And you can see um, in my... Uh, uh, New Testament commentary, you, you can see about 15 at least points of contact between Mary's words and Hannah's words. So she takes the cue from the angel saying twice, you are the Hannah-like one. And she, she takes the, the cue from that and she comes out with this song that's based upon Hannah's experience. So she was clearly fully aware of Hannah, and she knew, it would seem, that song of Hannah off by heart. And yet that's not all that she's alluding to. If you go through carefully her song, beginning, as I say, in, uh, in say, from verse 47 onwards, you can see a whole load of allusions, not only to Hannah, but to other, other scripture. For example, she says... Uh, Verse 48, he has regarded the low estate of his handmaid. Well, yes, this is 1 Samuel 1.11, where Hannah says, If you will look on the low estate of your handmaid, I will give the child to the Lord. But it's also Genesis 29.32, where Leah, after childbirth, says, The Lord has regarded my low estate. 
It's as if Mary believed that what the angel had said was so definitely going to happen that she praises God as if it has already happened. And she goes on, uh, Because he who is mighty has done great things for me. Now, yes, this is alluding to Hannah's words, but also Deuteronomy 10.21, He is your God, Moses says to Israel, who has done great things in you. It's uh, rather like what was done within the womb of Mary. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in you. The mighty one will save you. And she goes on to say that he has exalted them of low degree, another indication that she was poor. He has filled the hungry, that's Mary, with good things, and the rich, perhaps the rich women who wanted to be the mother of Messiah, he has sent empty away. Now, yes, these are Hannah's words, 1 Samuel 2, 7 and 8, The Lord makes poor and makes rich, he reduces to lowliness, and he lifts up. He lifts up the needy from the earth, and from the dung heap he raises up the poor, to seat them with the mighty, making them inherit a throne of glory. So she clearly has that in mind, but also Psalm 89, um, verse 11, which is about the messianic king, you've reduced the proud to lowliness like a wounded thing. Um, in Job 12:19, he has overthrown the mighty. And Ezekiel 21, verse uh, 31 in the Septuagint, 26 in the uh, Hebrew text, having reduced the proud to lowliness and having exalted the man of low degree. Psalm 107, 9, he's filled the soul of the hungry with good things. So all the way through, she's alluding not only to Hannah's song, but she's bringing together all sorts of other scriptures. Now, I would argue that if, as Luke 1 implies, she's given this news, you are the, the Hannah-like one, the highly favoured one, and you're going to be the mother of Messiah, and she comes out <clears throat> with this song of praise, instantaneously, she has got all these illusions already there in her mind. Not that I think she, uh, in a calculated way, sort of composed all this. I think that she was so familiar with all these scriptures that they came out naturally. And believe me, these are just a handful of the of the ones. If you, you look at, at uh, my thing, uh, my, my book, The Women and the Life of Jesus, there's several pages going through all, all this kind of stuff. My point is that this woman was filled with God's Word, and she therefore responded well and excellently, really, to the cue that the angel gave her. You are the Hannah-like one, and you, the, the hungry and the humble, you're going to be lifted up, uh, to be the mother of the Son of God. And this is where it all starts to be an exhortation to us, because day by day, and even hour by hour, we are being cued by God. Situations come into our lives, so we are jogged. And according to our appreciation of God's Word, we are guided in our response. Sometimes you read the Bible and you think, well, I didn't get anything out of that. What's the point? Well, there is a point, because by continual exposure to God's Word, unconsciously, this all takes a lodgment within us, and then when the cue comes, as it does, as God brings words and phrases into our minds, meetings with people, circumstance, situation in life comes along, you know how to respond. And you respond the right way, because you're thinking the right way. Now, there's no point saying, well, yeah, no, you know, I, that's okay for her, but you see, for me, I've got all these problems, all this busy life, etc. 
or I'm not that kind of person to memorize scripture and the rest of it. Well, she was really, you know, your typical, uh, talk about barefoot and pregnant, but she would have been your barefoot teenager, as I understand it, women uh, typically got married in their teens. It, she would have been the, uh, the girl from the poor background. Women had a pretty hard job, spent a lot of her time probably drawing water, uh, cooking, working, all the rest of it, looking after younger siblings, the rest of it. Um, so she had plenty of reason not to be like this. But for her, her heart's desire was the things of God. She had a true heart for God and for his word. And all these allusions she makes are the more wondrous, as I see it, because she would have been illiterate. And yet, that was not a barrier. And literacy almost is is almost the barrier, I think, to uh, to, to memorizing scripture sometimes. Um, and so <clears throat> she was filled with God's word, and so she knew how to respond when this unexpected thing happened, that the angel appeared and said, hey you, you're going to be pregnant and you're going to have the Son of God. We're told in verse 35, well-known words, that the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. Now what does this mean, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you? Well, clearly the Holy Spirit and the power of the highest are parallel there. But the Holy Spirit is not simply the naked power of God. The word spirit, admittedly, is, is very difficult to uh, interpret, to define, to translate, because it has, both in Hebrew and Greek, a very wide range of meaning. But it really begins, I, I think, with the idea that the spirit is the mind, the thinking. And because how a person thinks is how they act, therefore spirit can refer to both thought and what I've called naked power can refer to both those things. So, the Holy Spirit filled her. Uh, yes, that means that she became pregnant without the involvement of a, of a man, but I think it means more than that, bearing in mind that the Spirit refers to not just naked power, but thinking, mind, attitude, etc. Because she had filled herself with the things of God's Spirit, the things of His Word, therefore she was taken over uh, by the Holy Spirit because that's what she wanted to be and she'd shown that by this uh, way that she you know you can see the way she responds to the situation she just comes out with all these allusions to the scriptures the Spirit of God was dwelling in her and so God is waiting there to confirm each of us hour by hour in the way in which we want to go you want to be a, a spirit filled person with a heart for God he will confirm you in that desire. You can't be bothered because you say you're too busy and uh, well there's this that and the other going on in your life and you know the whole thing about being busy this is to some degree a matter of perception. Uh, it, it really is a matter of, uh, of perception because even the busiest person can fall in love when they want to, can start dating somebody when they want to, can you know, find time for what you want to find time for. This is so true. People tell me I've got no time to study the Bible. Yeah, you know, that's always my response. You find time for what you what you want to find time for, and that's that's true. So busyness, in that sense, is a matter of perception, and is a reflection, I think, of where our heart ultimately is. Now, just another 
little point about when she says in 34, how shall this be, seeing I don't know a man? You can read that, as I have previously read it, as her saying, okay, but uh, how's it going to happen? Because I don't have a husband and I'm a virgin, so how am I going to get pregnant? You mean like i got to go, go sleep with someone? Or, or sleep with Joseph or whatever? <clears throat> well, I don't think that is the point of her question. I think she's saying, okay, seeing that I do not know a man, how is this going to happen? And given her awareness of the scriptures, which her song very clearly reflects, I would assume that she was aware of Isaiah 7.14, which required a, a virgin to be made pregnant by God. And so she was anticipating that happening. And so she understood that she, as a virgin, was the chosen virgin to bear the child. And so she's saying, okay, um, so I'm the virgin that's required to bear the child, who will be son of God and son of David. So how is it going to work out in practice, seeing that I don't know a man, and obviously, uh, as I have to be the virgin uh, who, who bears the son of God, so I'm not going to like, go get pregnant by a man. So how is it going to happen? What's the mechanics? Another thing that uh, occurs to me in uh, verse 35 there, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Well, that is very uh, odd as a phrase, and it's clearly alluding to uh, how the Septuagint uses the word for overshadow, about the cloud of glory overshadowing the ark in the wilderness. Um, Exodus 25, 20, Exodus 40, 35, Numbers 9, 18, and 22, and also later on 1 Chronicles 28, 18. So the implication is, Mary, you're like the Ark of God now, and you're going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit as the cloud of spirit or glory overshadowed the Ark. I think she was confirmed in that thinking in verse 43, when Elizabeth says to her, Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Because she's quoting from the Septuagint there of 2 Samuel 6 verse 9, where David says, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And Elizabeth says, And how can the mother of my Lord come to me? She just changes ark of the Lord to mother of my Lord. So she was being invited to see herself as the ark. So what does she do with that? Does she just shrug and think, oh yeah, interesting little allusion there to the language of the ark. I'm the ark, am I? Well, when Elizabeth says that, confirming her and the idea that she's the ark of the Lord and the ark of the Lord has come to me, well, David said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And in response to that question, the ark remained for three months in the house of Obed-Edom. That's 2 Samuel 6.11. And so, here in Luke 1, verse 56, Mary stayed with her for three months and then returned to her own house. That's exactly how long the ark remained in the house of Obed-Edom before it went to its own house. So I wondered if she stayed three months with Elizabeth exactly because of that. Why didn't she stay two months or four months or two and a half months? So it, it continues this theme of somebody walking with the Lord. And this is so relevant for each of us 
but we also are invited to, as it were, follow the leading of the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit, Paul says to the Galatians. That where God leads us through his word, this is the way that we should walk. And so, by way of challenge, I ask you, when was the last time that you consciously did something because you perceived a similarity between your situation and a situation that was there in, in, in biblical history. To what degree are we letting God's word and our reflection upon it actually concretely guide us in daily life? You know, she stayed three months there, I think, because she was walking in step with the Spirit. She was following the idea of her being the ark of, of the Lord. Now, she's told that um, you know, she, the low one, is going to have the, uh, the great exaltation of being God's son. And see that in verse 52, she realizes that, um, that the proud have been put down and the low degree woman has been uh, exalted. And I said earlier that that's alluding to Ezekiel 21:26, where the princes are put down and him that is low, that is Messiah, is to be exalted. So she identifies herself with, uh, with Jesus, with, with her son. But this whole idea of putting down and Jesus being the one who was put down but who was exalted, this is very, very much the language of Philippians 2 about what happened on the cross, that the low one was exalted. Um, you got it again in the, the same Greek word, actually, that's used in Luke 1.48, her low estate, her humility. You've got it in Acts 8.33 about Jesus. In his humiliation, in his low estate, his justice was taken away. And it's the same word also, Philippians 2, verse 8, he humbled himself. Now, I wonder, therefore, if Jesus on the cross, and in his whole thinking about putting himself down that he might be exalted if he was uh, influenced and encouraged and inspired by his mother's example when he says Matthew 23:12, whoever will exalt himself will be abased and he that shall humble himself or abase himself uh, will be exalted I wondered if he's saying look uh, that song my mum used to sing to me as a kid because she would have recited her song probably use it to get Jesus off to sleep uh, as a baby and sung it around the house etc um, and he would have known these words extremely well it, it, I wonder if that didn't become his kind of credo to put himself down that he might be exalted and so you see there the, the huge influence that Mary had upon Jesus and that influence eventually had uh, some eternal consequence because he was exalted and eternally exalted. And so I think that's an encouragement to all of us that the influence we have upon others and this is particularly true of mothers with their children, if those people end up in God's kingdom who they eternally are may well be a reflection of our uh, interaction with them in this life. Now even after his resurrection in John 20 verse 29 Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen but have believed. Blessed are those who have believed. And that's exactly, he's using exactly the words of Elizabeth 
about Mary, his mother, in Luke 1 here and 45. Blessed is she that believed. So then, even after his resurrection and glorification, the Lord Jesus was still aware of what had happened in his earliest infancy. He was aware of the things that we've just read here in Luke 1. And it was an abiding memory. So even in divine nature, we will still be aware of the things that have happened in this life forever and ever and ever. And they will influence maybe the language, the kind of communication which we have, even after we are in divine nature. I'm going to see this, um, I think, in the talk on Luke 2, but... um, bottom line is that Jesus in his letters to the churches in Revelation, this is when he's already ascended and in heaven in, in glory, that he alludes to the words of Mary and the situation that he had with Mary in, in childhood so the influence we have on others can be in one sense eternal, for example how we think and, and phrases we use we are we come out with these things and have this pattern of thinking because of our interaction with others and that affects our personality and yet our personality who we are as persons is what's going to be saved the bible does teach personal salvation you and duncan will be saved what does that mean that i will be saved it's not just a a literal physical thing that I therefore shall live forever but that I as a personality as Duncan and Duncan is the sum of all his interactions uh, with people from babyhood onwards um, that will be saved because we personally will be saved and so I think this really opens a uh, up a, a great window onto the, the huge significance of human life. And it, it saddens me no end that so much of the uh, uh, interaction that goes on, even between believers, is of such a banal, uh, empty, meaningless kind of nature. When really we're in the business of eternal life. And that influence that we have upon each other, upon each other's personality and character, that will go on forever finally I want to conclude by talking about the fact that it seems to me that Mary consciously wanted to be the mother of Jesus now Luke 1.48 Mary says he has looked upon me now looking upon somebody is an idiom for answered prayer um Genesis 6.12, 29.32, Exodus 2.25, Deuteronomy 26.7, Judges 6.14. To look upon somebody is to hear their prayer. So then I would say that Mary prayed for that child. And she describes his mercy to her, verse 50. Uh, The angel came and, and said, verse 28 that she was graciously accepted now I'm quoting from the AV margin or verse 30 she found favour and so the whole idea of finding favour and being graciously accepted implies I think a request from her also when the angel comes and says hail 
Um, in some modern paraphrases, like the Living New Testament, it says congratulations. And I think that there is an element of that, as far as I, I can see from lexicons in, in the Greek word. You congratulate somebody really, uh, I suppose, in them achieving something, that they want it. Now, we've said that Mary is alluding to Hannah's prayer, uh, but prayers, the prayer of Hannah was a prayer of thanks, because she desperately prayed for that child. And of course it's the angel Gabriel that appears to Mary, and Gabriel in the Old Testament is nearly always the angel associated with answered prayer. And the angel almost seems to comfort her. Verse 28 and 30 says twice, You that are highly favoured, fear not, Mary, for you have found favour with God. As if she kind of doubted it somewhat. That it's all okay. You, you have been heard. It says in Luke 1:48 that God took notice of me. Now, now that, yeah, God taking notice... Uh, certainly implies she was, as it were, waving her arms around here on earth, saying, I want to be the mother of Messiah. Now, I would say that probably the, uh, the biggest reason that I, I would say <clears throat> that she had wanted to have this, this child uh, is a sort of a psychological one. That when the angel appears to her, quite suddenly and says uh, you're going to have a baby you're the virgin who's going to have the baby you're pregnant I mean the natural worldly reaction would have been oh no what's Joseph going to think he isn't going to believe this um, what about my parents my brothers the villagers I'm going to be the shame and the laughing stock of the whole area I'm pregnant and I'm going to have to tell everybody no 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 I'm the only woman in all of history who didn't get pregnant by, by a guy uh, no, there was no guy involved. You know what? An angel came. And the angel made me pregnant. And this is going to be the son of God. No. Y you know, uh, I think not. That the psychological reaction to, hey, you, you virgin, you, teenage engaged woman who hasn't slept with your boyfriend, you're pregnant. It, the natural reaction to that is, oh, no. But instead, she, she's ecstatic with praise. Now, that to me, psychologically, is only understandable if she, she really had asked for this child. Wow, the prayer's been heard. That's what she's saying. Remember that Jesus was born of the seed of David, Romans 1.3. Uh, he was in the direct line of David. And I wonder if Mary had perceived that uh, she also was from that direct line of David as if she knew that any child any son she had would actually have been the rightful uh, king of Israel uh, Luke 2 verse 4 says that Joseph and Mary uh, in the uh, Sinaiticus text it's not um, the same as what the AV uses um, <clears throat> they went to the city of David because both were of the house and lineage of David the AV says, because he, Joseph, was of the house of David. So it could be that <clears throat> she was actually from Judah. That's why she had to be registered in, uh, in Bethlehem, in, in Judah. And yet her cousin, Elizabeth, was from Levi. 
So maybe she understood that she was in a unique position, that any child she had would be a king priest, a priest and yet the king, the rightful king in David's line of Israel. Just to uh, just to think about. But in conclusion, she says in verse 49 that God is he that is mighty, who has done for me great things. And yet that Greek word dunatos, that's translated mighty, 13 times it's translated possible, able, it's translated 10 times, and only 6 times is it translated mighty. Uh, I'm talking about how it's translated in, in the AV. So then, he that is possible, the God of possibility, I think that's the idea. And so she realizes that God had, as it were, seen her low estate, heard her prayers, and yes, he was really going to do this. So then, I think we can take away a great challenge. And it is the challenge of spiritual ambition. That that barefoot, illiterate teenage girl, in an absolute backwater, with no money, who loved God and loved God's word, she dreamt and wanted to be the mother of Messiah, not just in a teenage fantasy way. She wanted to be the mother of the Son of God. And she could see <clears throat> beyond her immediate situation to that possibility, the God that was mighty, as she believed, the God of possibility, enabled that. Now, you and I <clears throat> also may feel that we are limited within the frames of our possibilities and very limited by the frames of where we live, who we are, our financial position, our social position, maybe our gender, depending where we are, um, all these kind of things which we can feel are almost crushing. But she had the, the vision to look beyond that. And I think that that's why God chose her out of all the possibilities he could have chosen and it will be the same for you and me that let yourself not only dream but realistically believe that the important thing is to, to have the right uh, desire the right fantasy the right dream the right intention and God in his time will surely make that come true just as he did for Mary <laughs>